You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Your host for this episode is Sally Greenberg, Executive Director at the National Consumers League. This is Sally Greenberg with the National Consumers League. I'm joined here by Dr. Linda Fu, who is a pediatrician, and we're going to be talking to her about vaccine issues. And I'm joined by my colleague, Patricia Kelmer, who's our Senior Director of Health for the National Consumers League. Thank you, Sally. Dr. Fu is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine. She also serves as the Director of Academic Development at the Goldberg Center for Community Pediatric Health. Dr. Fu, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. If we can start out with your description of your family background, how you decided to become a physician, and we'll just add that the National Consumers League has been working on medical issues and vaccine issues for a number of years and very supportive of uh, the medical community's interest in getting everyone vaccinated, especially our kids. I'm a general pediatrician. I practice in Washington, D.C., and I also spend a lot of my time on research and community-based research. So when I, so about my background, when I graduated from medical school about 20 years ago, I really had this feeling like I want to go out and help and um, help children, right? I think that's why most people go into medicine. And I really felt that my reach is limited if I um, just treat the patient in my practice. And so I really felt I need additional skills in order to reach a broader audience. And so I went back and got a Master's of Science in Clinical Research, focusing on um, community and population health, so that um, anything, any messages that I could share with an individual family, I would have the skills to actually understand how I could broaden that reach. So after finishing that training, I thought, well, what's the most important thing that I could study? You know, I didn't have a background in anything at that point. And I truly feel to this day that the most important thing that um, we do in our pediatric practice has very little to do with me and actually more to do with the nurses. It is vaccinating children. It um, saves more lives. It is more helpful and beneficial to um, children and everybody around them than the advice that I can give to uh, families and then me poking around and doing my exam on them. So that's, that's my background. That's how I got involved in this. Patricia? I'm, I'm happy to hear that um, because what we've seen this summer uh, is a large outbreak of uh, measles and it seems like there's more need than ever, actually, for the research and from the voices in the medical community to help us understand the importance of vaccination. So do you want to talk a little bit about um, your reaction to the events of the summer and and this issue of um, outbreaks? Because people are getting vaccines today. Right. It's funny. When I started doing this, really, my interest was in helping people get access underserved communities and helping reach people who 
couldn't um, get vaccines for whatever reasons. And um, what's interesting is in, you know, maybe the last decade or so, um, we've seen the issue isn't so much that people can't have access, but there are personal barriers and knowledge and attitude barriers that are really preventing people from um, getting their children fully and their themselves fully vaccinated. And so what we've seen is that it is slowly becoming more and more of an issue. We've seen the measles rates and outbreaks increase um, really over the last two decades. Uh, measles was actually eradicated from the United States in the early 1990s, meaning literally there were no cases of measles in the United States, and it was eradicated from other parts of the world as well. But due to international travel and um, pockets of people not being fully vaccinated, we've slowly seen increases here in our country, which is a huge shame. And then just this year, we've had more measles cases than we've had since 1992, there have been 1,200, over 1,200 cases of measles in the United States this year, um, which is which is such a shame. A lot of people think that measles is a kind of a, like a, a, a common cold. Like you get it, you get over it, it's not a big deal. I know I had it as a kid and, you know, my friends had it as kids. And so there's this uh, theory out there that it's better to get measles and get it over with, and then you have lifetime immunity. What's wrong with that theory? Well, so measles for most people can be something that is self-limited. But if you just think about those 1,200 cases in the last year, um, 119 of those were hospitalized and 61 of them had serious compli complications, including pneumonia and brain infection called encephalitis. So it is not without risk. Um, one thing that I will say is some people think, well, then I'll just get the disease. But the risk of having complications from measles is one in 500, whereas the risk of any reaction to any of the vaccines is one in a million to one in two million. So really, you know, if you're playing the odds, it makes a lot more sense to get vaccinated than to try to uh, slip get the, by get and, the, and be okay. Yeah, get the illness. Mm -hmm. And well, I'm of the era where we didn't have uh, mumps vaccinations. We didn't have measles. We didn't have German measles vaccination. We didn't have chickenpox vaccination. I know my son, who's now 24, had all of those vaccines, so he never had any of those illnesses. Do you think we're in some ways a, a product of our own success and we're suffering from the fact that we've pretty much eradicated a lot of these illnesses so we don't see the effects? I think that's definitely what the case is. Most of the diseases that we, uh, vaccines protect against have been largely eradicated. These diseases were a lot more common about 50 years ago. And when you think about the people making the decisions about vaccines for their children, you know, they're in their 20s and 30s. They don't really know how terrible it was. Even I don't, you know, I've seen some of them, the, the diseases for which we've had later vaccines like meningitis, and those are horrible. And once you see them, you really don't want your child or yourself to contract something like this. But it's this lack of memory and like anything, there's a risk to vaccines. It's infinitesimally small, but there are risks. And so when people think about that and they hear stories that are frightening, 
they don't necessarily make a good risk-benefit decision because it's based on fear rather than pure numbers. We're not computers. We don't base things just on numbers. Right. It's, it's interesting, right, to think about the different reasons that people might have in the different generations. So I can remember clearly my mother talking about friends that she had who had polio. That story was passed on to me. But you're right. They're the Today's generation of parents don't even have anyone in their life who have seen, you know, someone struggling to stand because they've ha- they've had polio and suffered from that. Even the grandparents now are of the age that it's sort of rare for it to be seen and so it really is we've been so successful. Well, I think we have this false sense of security, right? We've we've eradicated this. We're we're done. And so therefore I'm fine. And the chance, this risk, perhaps, that that seems to be escalated in the anti-vax community that maybe getting a vaccine might put you at risk, seems to be bigger than the risk of actually getting the disease. But as we saw in New York City, we had a tremendous outbreak. In fact, the United States, I understand, was at risk of losing its WHO, the World Health Organization, credential of being measles free and just missed that mark by a little bit. And, and, you know, how shameful that would be that this country that has the resources that has worked very, very hard to make sure that everyone has access to important life-saving vaccines is the one country that isn't actually taking advantage of that access. So it's concerning. So Dr. Fu and Patricia, my uncle had polio. It was in a wheelchair before I was born. He contracted it. And I grew up with the knowledge that this destroyed the family, destroyed the family's income and resources. He had to spend two years in the hospital. He lost his, his work. He, his wife divorced him. And my mother was in a constant state of mourning about her beloved older brother. And so I saw those effects. But we also had a president with polio. FDR had polio, and I was told about that, and anyone can look at it, see our president in a wheelchair. I want to talk to you about how you talk to your patients. I think you said something really important a few minutes ago, and that is the chance that you'll get measles is 1 in 500. The chance that you're going to have a negative reaction, and I asked you this uh, when we, well, we met before. Well, the chances of dying from measles, if you have uh, measles, is 1 in 500. Oh, in the, the, dying right. from measles. Oh, that's a big, that's right, a right. much bigger deal dying from measles because as you pointed out measles can have terrible side effects i read a statistic about measles killing over 300 people around the world every single day it's a serious illness it's definitely endemic in other parts of the world and including parts of europe and so you know you think you're protected maybe you haven't traveled internationally recently but the guy next to you in the deadly line has and so you aren't protected measles is highly contagious, meaning that you could actually just be in the same room as somebody who sneezes and catch it. You don't actually have to touch something that they touched or drink from what they've uh, drunk from, Um, although those are other ways that you could contract measles. But um, just being in the same room, it takes that little exposure um, to contract the measles vaccine. uh, Sorry, the measles disease. Let's just get that last half of right. the sentence there. Okay. It takes that little exposure to contract measles. And so, you know, you can't bubble or wall yourself off from it. So there are people who are hesitant. You, you've described it when you came and talked at our panel. You described vaccine hesitancy. 
among your patients who just don't really understand and think that there's a, a greater risk than there is. And then there's the there's a, a very active orchestrated campaign to spread misinformation. So I think there are two different camps. Can you talk about that? That's right. So not everybody for anything in life um, has the same perspective. And so, you know, there isn't just one specific way to talk to people about the issue. I think um, the only thing, the only commonality is to approach from a place of empathy and understanding that um, people are concerned and they're frightened and they're not doing it because um, they think, for instance, that I'm a quack who doesn't know what um, they're talking about, that I'm t- what I'm talking about, or um, because they're anti-establishment. They are afraid. And, um, you know, I see families. And so I know that parents, from talking to them, they are concerned and want to do what's best for their child. And so I think approaching people from that standpoint, not just in the clinical setting, but when we have friends or family members who are afraid of vaccines, um, including my own mother-in-law, you know, approaching them from that perspective allows you to really listen to what the concerns are. Um, People who are intent on not vaccinating and um, can't be convinced, uh, they won't look at other sources other than ones that reaffirm their uh, current perspectives. I think that's difficult, and I don't know of a way, and I don't think the scientific literature um, gives us any idea of how to approach those people. But really, who I'm talking about in terms of trying to reach personally in my life and in my practice are people who just need a little bit more information. Um, They need time to be able to ask their questions and um, to hear answers from somebody who they trust. I'm thinking a little bit about our you know, role as Americans, right? We're, we have this strong pride in our ability to be independent and to have the freedoms that we want, right? But yet we're also based on a democracy, which is talking about, you know, really working together and solving problems together. Community Community, as well. the importance of community and the, and the personal responsibility to the, to the entity that we have here, our United States of America. And so um, I think about that also in terms of this decision of to vaccinate or not vaccinate, right? And um, I'm thinking in particular about the herd immunity, and maybe you can explain a little bit about that. And the decision of an individual not to get vaccinated actually has a broader community implication. That's right. Um, so what the outbreaks in of measles in New York has shown us is that even if the country is highly immunized, which we do have high immunization rates for um, measles, mumps, uh, rubella vaccine overall, if a particular community has lower rates, those are the um, people who are going to interact with each other. And so um, diseases can spread if there are pockets of under immunization. So when we talk about herd immunity, that means that uh, enough members of a community are vaccinated such that they protect those who are not immunized, either because they can't, because they are too young or too old, or um, have weakened immune systems, or also protecting those who choose not to vaccinate. But you need a high level of immunization uh, of the population to be immunized in order to um, achieve herd immunity. 
And it really depends on how contagious uh, that disease is. But for most vaccine-preventable diseases, we're talking about 95% or so of the population that needs to be immunized. And again, we're not talking about the entire United States. We're talking in the local community of people who interact. And so herd immunity, to rely on that, one, I think, as um, Patricia, you were saying earlier, you know, we have this community-mindedness, this civic-mindedness where we protect those really to be part of the society and you know, we can we should contribute and not just take from it. Um, but it's also just unreliable to uh, think that herd immunity will protect you because um, something that's also tr- transmittable, I think, are ideas. And so, you know, if you're saying this is not good, I'm not going to get my child immunized. What do you think is going to happen to the people that you're talking to? And then the level of people who are protected and right. covered by immunizations will be down. So if I, uh, let's say I'm I'm a patient and I've got or I I'm uh, the parent of several patients of yours and I come in and I go you know Dr. Fu I've I've read about a link to autism on the internet and I have people telling me that putting some poison into my children's bloodstream by getting them vaccinated and I'm worried about it I don't necessarily believe them but but um, you know you're giving all these shots to this baby. How can you assure me that my child's going to be or my children are going to be protected? Right. Um, so let's, How does that conversation right, work? That's a, <laughs> that is a long conversation, and I have 15 minutes for an appointment. So that's the challenge and the difficulty, which is why I encourage everybody who feels strongly about it to speak out because, you know, the anti-vaxxers are super vocal, and I think, um, you know, we have to be equally passionate in our communications um, just yeah, there with, are great tools from on the CDC website that help uh, individuals who feel strongly about the importance of vaccines to talk to others about it. And I think you're right. Different people trust different people, right? So there might be individuals who don't trust their health care provider as much as they trust their next door neighbor or their best friend. Um, so we all have a role to play in the education. I completely agree, Patricia. And I also think, in addition to um, having different people that you trust more or less, um, hearing it from multiple different sources is really important. Exactly. And and I would say for myself, I know when my kids were growing up, um, if somebody said they weren't vaccinating, it's really hard to work that in. Well, I think that you're wrong. You know, you sound a little bit... conceited or know-it-all-y, I don't know, on the playground. So what I would say is think about it at other times where it doesn't feel so confrontational. It can be just part of the conversation, but it's something that we have to think about. Um, again, if it's an acquaintance, I think it's sort of hard to confront somebody who's anti-vaxxer, but the whole idea is to just talk about it in general. The vast majority of people vaccinate their children. Anti-vaxxers make up 2 to 3% of the population. It's a very small percentage, but they're super vocal. There is absolutely no link between MMR vaccine or any vaccine and autism. That is completely unproven. Uh, Back to your question, Sally, what to do um, when somebody talks about the potential risks of vaccination. I'm, I'm very glad. I think that the media has a huge role to play in this, and I think I've seen more recently in media reports less discussion about the discredited studies um, linking uh, vaccines to autism and um, more about the issues that are um, scientifically proven. 
But to go into that a little bit, there was a study back in 97 from a British scientist, Andrew Wakefield. It was published in The Lancet. It was found that he had a conflict of interest with this study and that there were methodological errors. Afterwards, all of his co-authors retracted. Uh, the Lancet's pulled the, ar- the article, and uh, he lost his medical license. So I think, but that one thing really just took off um, in people's imaginations. Since then, there have been multiple, multiple studies that have shown no link between vaccines and autism. And um, actually, more recent studies have shown signs um, and evidence of autism in utero. So um, prior to the baby even being born, there um, can be evidence. Right. So there's other risk factors. When Andrew Wakefield published this study in the late 1990s, there was growing awareness about autism, and actually diagnoses rates uh, were increasing. And um, some thought was that um, healthcare providers were better at identifying it, and then also by giving children this label, it uh, allowed them to access more benefits at school and also um, more treatments through their insurance companies. And so there has been, uh, they coincided. The other thing was, was that autism, you uh, tend to lose your milestones um, and ability. So for instance, your language abilities um, around the same time, just coincidentally, as the age that the MMR vaccine is recommended. So a lot of people put this correlation together and assigned causation. But what we do know is that um, we continue to give um, MMR vaccine. The rates have not increased in terms of the rates of autism. And so that link is false, even um, from an epidemiologic standpoint. When Andrew Wakefield published this study in the late 1990s, there was growing awareness about autism, and actually diagnoses rates uh, were increasing. And um, some thought was that um, healthcare providers were better at identifying it, and then also by giving children this label, it uh, allowed them to access more benefits at school and also um, more treatments through their insurance companies. And so there has been, uh, they coincided, the other thing was, was that autism, you uh, tend to lose your milestones um, and ability, so for instance, your language abilities, um, around the same time, just coincidentally, as the age that the MMR vaccine is recommended. So a lot of people put this correlation together and assigned causation. But what we do know is that um, we continue to give um, MMR vaccine. The rates have not increased in terms of the rates of autism. And so that link is false, even um, from an epidemiologic standpoint. You know, I was thinking maybe Dr. Fu could talk a little bit about, you know, what it takes to become a vaccine, right? So maybe maybe some of this question is people don't really understand the science behind it and kind of the many steps that have to happen before a vaccine can even make it to market. Sure. So it is a long, drawn-out process. Um, And expensive. 
expensive process yes. as well, um, and one that we come to accept. We use so many medications, and we don't realize how much has gone into it beforehand. Actually, the U.S. has one of the most lengthy approval process for new medications in the world, um, which is why sometimes um, treatments are available in Europe before they are in the U.S., but it is all for safety. So first are the preclinical trials in which um, vaccines are tested in the laboratory. That alone can last five to 15 years. That's before it's tested in any people. That's a long time. It's a definite long time. And after that um, are the clinical trials. And they start off small with just a you know, few dozen people to see um, if it is at all um, dangerous in healthy people. And then they expand to a few hundred people to look at effectiveness. And then uh, they expand to thousands of people. Again, all of this is prior to anybody in the public uh, being vaccinated. It is all in the clinical trials. Um, and then after all of those testings, um, it may, it's not guaranteed to have FDA approval. Um, Does FDA supervise this process of clinical trials, by the way? Is it um, done according to the, their protocols or CDC's protocols? Well, so you have to, there's a very strict process uh, for the FDA to finally approve it. So you'd have to follow. Sub submit the research exactly, to the FDA for review. for review. And it had to have followed, you know, strict guidelines in order um, for it to finally be approved. And even after it is approved and out on market, um, there is still uh, vigilance going on. So um, public health authorities um, are monitoring for any sort of um, potential side effects and seeing whether that is any higher than in the background levels. Um, and so it's a very um, laborious process and um, it's all done because vaccines are something that we give to healthy people. It is more safe to take a vaccine than other medications because we have a higher standard. Because we know we are giving them to healthy people, we have to make sure that it's not just a slight benefit to receive them, but a major benefit to give them to a large, like, our entire population. Right. So that so that kind of scientific rigor is should help um, at least certain populations to understand that, you know, vaccines are safe. Um, they wouldn't be out there in the marketplace if, if they um, hadn't gone through these stringent rules and regulations and proven their effectiveness. So, of course, that doesn't convince everybody, right? Science doesn't convince everybody. So it is back to that individual messaging, it seems. Who's, do you know who's behind the, the, the really staunch anti-vax? If you don't, I'm not sure I know. I've read, I've read some articles, but uh, there seems to be a really strong, even though it's very small, very vocal movement. I don't remember the name of the family, but Lena's son, who was on that panel, had written this, uh, I thought, fascinating expose that it was a particular family. In the was funded, from the Washington from Post the Washington story, Post, yeah. There was a particular family that had contributed heavily um, to uh, funding the anti-vax campaign. And interestingly, you know, there were other stories 
about how uh, Russians and Russian bots were spreading anti-vaccine stories on social media to sow discord in our electorate. So, you know, I think the source of the information is so important. One thing that we, um, you know, frightening. It is very frightening. (laughs) But I think one thing, you know, that this goes back, this, we talk about educating um, parents at the pediatrician's office, and I think goes even further. Um, People make their decisions, uh, but while they're pregnant, and so OBs need to be talking to Parents and, and pregnant being women. the doctors who take care of pregnant women. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Need to be talking to pregnant women. And I think it goes back even further um, to how we teach things in school. We talked about um, teaching civics to students. I, I think we need to be strong about that. We also need to teach them about um, social media literacy, um, where to get information, and what makes something a credible source. I think all that's important in order to restore trust in our um, in our public health systems. We all know that there are certain illnesses that none of us want to get. How do shingles present themselves, and isn't there a connection between shingles and chickenpox? That's right. So it is caused by the same virus that causes chickenpox. And what happens is when you have chickenpox, it can stay dormant in your nervous system. And then for whatever reason, if your body is challenged because you're tired or because you're older or because you are stressed, my brother-in-law actually got shingles when his wife went into labor and had a very difficult labor. Um, So anything can cause it to um, reemerge from uh, the nerves and come out as a very, very painful rash usually in one localized area on one side of the body. And it is extremely, extremely uncomfortable and can be debilitating for people and is also contagious. And so um, if you have shingles and are around, for instance, uh, my niece, my newborn niece, you can um, you can spread it to others as well. You can spread the chickenpox. So the chickenpox vaccine, um, protects against that in younger people. And then the zoster vaccine um, protects elderly people from having this remergence, uh, resurgence, I guess, um, of uh, this virus. Wait, are you calling anybody over 50 elderly? Yes, that was, that was a poor choice of terms. <laughs> Older. It is recommended it's for... It's very close for, for me, so it's for not, over, I'm not. Over, <laughs> I would never have guessed. So it is recommended for anyone uh, 50 years and older, the shingles vaccine, and it is two vaccines, That's two right. shots that make up the the full vaccine treatment that immunity. is recommended, full vaccine immunity that's recommended. And the new vaccine for shingles, it's considered to be much more effective? That's correct. And so it is definitely a good idea for people to get that uh, shingles vaccine, the uh, new vaccine. Kids can't get shingles? Kids can get shingles. It's more common um, in not elderly, but older people. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep it to 50 and over, would you please? Yeah, because older people is also very terrifying. The shingles vaccine Mm -hmm. has become so much in demand that there's a a low supply and it's very hard to get a vaccination and you need two of them i know cuz i ran out to try to get them when i had friends getting shingles and and um the first vaccine that came out wasn't that effective but then science developed 
two new vaccines or uh, vaccines that required two shots and you couldn't find the vaccine because you know if we are over 50 you realize oh my god this is the last thing i want to get this sounds horrifying so you had the opposite effect where people saw the illness they wanted to do anything they could do to avoid it and and so maybe that's Isn't a good that lesson for us <laughs> right right because people have experienced it, uh, it's pretty common. Um, and so people know people who have experienced it. I will relay my own story. I, my faith in vaccines is so strong. Um, about 10 years ago, when um, there was the H1N1 flu, um, I was pregnant and working in a hospital, and so at high risk. And so I marched out with my toddler and my husband, and we waited outside in a long line that wrapped around the Department of Health. Um, wait, you had to wait in a long line? Oh, sure. As yeah. a pediatrician? Right. We didn't have <laughs> a it pregnant at the hospital. Pediatrician. <laughs> and so, and we brought a little lollipop for my son when he finished. And um, so we get up there. It was finally our turn after about an hour and a half of waiting. And um, my son gets the vaccine, no problem. My husband gets his injection, no problem. And then they uh, gave me my shot. And actually, for some reason, it sort of burst in the hub. And so they said, oh, okay, you probably didn't get very much. Let's do it again. So they gave it to me again, burst in the hub. Mm -hmm. um, and so I didn't know how much of the <laughs> vaccine that I had gotten. But, you know, what I... What does burst in the hub mean? Well, it just sort of... I, I don't really know. It's it sort of sprayed all over the place. So <laughs> some maybe went in me. Some didn't go in me. I think it was must have been a defective syringe or something like that. Um, but, you know, I went back to the Department of Public Health. We called the CDC, and they asked whether I should get it again. They said it was up to me. I went back the next day, and I got that vaccine. Um, you know, I gave it to my uh, toddler son. I gave it to my unborn baby. But, you know, that's how much faith I have in the system. It's not something that I just recommend for my patients. It's something that I live by, too. Did you ever see somebody with uh, who got the, uh, the virus, the H1N1? Definitely. And in our hospital, we every year, unfortunately, um, have children in the ICU. And most years, um, at least one patient who dies from the flu. So it's not something, again, where a lot of, I know a lot of people say, well, it's not that bad. I don't get it. But why not take something that can help not only um, prevent death, but reduce um, the chance of hospitalization and reduce the number of days of symptoms? That's what the flu vaccine can do. So it may not be 100% effective at um, preventing the flu, but it will reduce the severity of symptoms. You know, you do hear from people. I mean, I have friends, Patricia, you probably do too. We all do who say, uh, I never get a flu vaccine. The one time I got it, I got sick afterward. That's right. You hear, you hear a lot of this sort of folk wisdom or mythology out there. Uh, what can we do as people really care about community health, as Patricia was talking about, public health, work with the medical community to combat that kind of uh, 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 erroneous information? Right. If I had the magic solution, I would definitely tell everybody here today, um, you know, I can, I can quote the science and I'm happy to tell you what it is. Um, and I think it's just hearing the message over and over again in which, whichever way you say it that you're passionate about. But what I, what I will say is I, I hear that a lot from patients too, um, that, you know, when I get the flu vaccine, um, I get the flu. 
it is literally impossible to get the flu from the injection. It is not made out of um, live virus. Live virus. Mm. And so what it is is antigens which stimulate your immune system to produce an immune response. Same way when you get a common cold, um, you don't ever say, well, the cold gave me yet another cold, right? It, it can't, you know... It's your immune system reacting to the antigens. Um, some things that people say also is that, well, it's too many, you know, it's, it's too much of a challenge. Um, people get exposed to more antigens that challenge the immune system from eating something that fell on the floor and then picking it back up from getting a cut <laughs> on the arm. We, oh, that's a really bacteria interesting. Bacteria are all around us. Um, so one thing that I read, which I think is interesting, is that if all the um, baby scheduled vaccines were given at, at once, it would use up slightly more than 0.1% of a baby's immune capacity. So it's nothing. You know, It doesn't overwhelm the immune system. It actually, like anything, the more you are challenged, the stronger you become, which is why they say that kids who grow up on the farm or attend preschool actually are less likely to develop um, allergies um, later on or eczema later on in life because their immune system has been challenged. So um, so if I pick up a tomato, fell on the floor and eat it, I'm actually helping my immune system probably because <laughs> I've been known to do dogs. those. <laughs> I've been known to do such things. Right, right. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting point because we've moved from the um, pediatric world, right, to to the older than a baby, right? There are lots of vaccines out there for people beyond um, babyhood. And so um, that's another challenging opportunity for us, I think, to um, understand the opportunities to keep older people especially healthier by making sure that they have their own um, scheduled vaccines. And I don't know, Dr. Fu, if you can well, that's right. feel comfortable talking about that population as well, but... They're definitely not who I immunize, but I definitely feel passionate about um, immunizations for adolescents and the elderly as well for the exact same reasons. Um, they are vulnerable populations. Um, adolescents in group living situations like college spread um, lots of things amongst each other, and the elderly have... Um, are weakened and can be more susceptible to complications when they get um, vaccine-preventable diseases. So it's really important. And what I think is interesting is that there's a learning curve, not just for the public, but also for the healthcare providers. So if you have people in um, college students of uh, student health departments, as well as um, adult um, internists or family practice um, uh, physicians who aren't typically um, immunizing a lot of people, they have the same biases um, as do the public because it hasn't been something that they've necessarily um, kept on the radar unless they've had young children of their own recently. And so they're learning um, as well as the public. Right. Can you talk a little bit about um, the, you talked about teenagers. So uh, we're um, in an era where we have this vaccine for uh, for HPV. How do you counsel your patients? I'm sure you have your pediatrician, so your your population probably goes up to about 18 until kids go off to to college. 
talk to me about how you talk to parents about it because there's there's some concerns by parents like are we encouraging our our kids to be sexually active that was a concern early on um, that you know giving them the HPV vaccine might um, encourage your child um, that they're safe and uh, they don't have to worry about sexually transmitted diseases and um, so they should have they would have sex earlier. Um, the epidemiologic evidence, there was just a study that came out recently. Um, teenagers are engaging in sex less. And so um, the HPV vaccine has been out for over a decade. And comparing um, before it came out to um, recent data, there are fewer teens um, having sex than prior to the vaccine. So that has not borne out on a population level in the United States. and. For some reason, I think how it rolled out, and, and the messaging is so important, um, how HPV vaccine was introduced to the public, we've learned a lot since then, um, I think caused some of the um, concern over the vaccination. I think um, it is very helpful in women. It is also helpful in men. But because it can prevent cervical cancer, at first it was approved uh, for uh, women and girls first, and I think that caused some confusion. Well, why doesn't my son need it? Why does only my daughter need it? And so what we have now, even though HPV vaccine is recommended for boys and girls, um, so ba- basically all um, And you teens, recommend it I for your patients. I definitely recommend it, and my own son, again, has had the HPV vaccine, uh, both doses. Um, so what how we o- have- How old is he? I have a 12-year-old, and I have a 9, almost 10-year-old, and he will get his vaccine on time, too. And, and what, when do you get the vaccine? Um, it's recommended at age 11 and 12. For boys um, and girls? For boys and girls. And so um, what we have is the HPV vaccine coverage rates are lower than other adolescent vaccines by about 30%. Um, percent. Um, and even though it's recommended for everybody and it can prevent cancer. If you think about, you know, a vaccine to prevent cancer, why are we not I'll all take a vaccine yeah. to prevent all We'd kinds all of cancer. We don't line up for that one, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. So the recommendation um, for providers is to recommend um, same day, same way. So you recommend all the vaccines together because they have all been um, tested and are safe and effective. Millions of doses Um, We talked about the licensure, post-licensure of this vaccine. Millions of doses have been given out, and so it's safe in large population for over a decade. uh, I think that's incredible. Uh, Can I play devil's advocate for a second? So meningitis, it's uh, spread in – it's very rare. We're talking about maybe 24 cases a year across the country. But if it happens, you were you referred to it earlier, especially among college students in dormitories tweets. where there's a lot of sharing of things. And um, we're going to say we need to vaccinate everyone because uh, 24 young people may get um, uh, uh, meningitis. Will you talk about the effects of meningitis and what your feeling is about uh, vaccinating millions of people so that we can um, save a few lives? The meningitis vaccine for adolescents should be given at age 11 with a booster dose at age 16. If you've ever seen a case of meningitis, it's super frightening, uh, bacterial meningitis, because it comes on so quickly and um, turns 
um, very severe in literally hours. Um, and so it can cause death in a matter of a day or so, you know, so it's, it's, it's a very frightening thing. And um, so there are two meningitis specific vaccines. And one is recommended for all, um, all children, men ACWY. And then there's another one, um, men B, um, which um, is recommended for, um, for people to talk with their physicians to arrive at a decision. Now, men B is it's meningitis actually, B. Meningitis B mm-hmm. is actually more common than um, the other uh, serotypes, the ACW and Y serotypes. But that one covers a bunch all at once, but it's not any less dangerous. And all meningitis is is super frightening and super deadly. And so um, the idea of having a vaccine that can be protective is really something that I think I talk about with my patients. Like for my own children, I would want them to get this vaccine before they get to college, and really both both meningitis both, va- both meningitis vaccines. Really, it was an economic decision. The fact that um, the recommendation was uh, for the men B to have a um, talk about it with your provider called a Category B recommendation. Why isn't that in your mind uh, effective enough? Well, because we you. should be talking about all the vaccines with our physicians, right? So I recommend them all the same. The duration of protection for the men B vaccine is maybe less well known. So that's the difference. However, again, on an individual basis for my own children, I would want them to get that vaccine. If it offers protection and they're going into an environment in which I know meningitis can spread, personally, I would want that, um, that vaccination. And I think we should be talking to uh, parents about all their, their children's vaccines and um, the adolescents about the vaccines. On the meningitis um, issue, I think it's so very important. I mean, when you're talking about these symptoms coming on so quickly and, and getting deadly or you know debilitating so quickly, we all know college students, how busy they are. They ignore the symptoms. They figure they can sleep through it. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't we want to protect our, our kids from that experience? It just is unbelievable how quickly it can come through and then and cause devastating impacts. And unfortunately, you know, it goes back maybe to that education, right? Do are there are students in school even learning about what's to come in their health class, right? Not just the birds and the bees, but um, what is the role of vaccines? How do we keep ourselves healthy? Let's not just treat diseases, but let's keep ourselves healthy. And what's the role of vaccines? And I want you to jump in on this, uh, Dr. Fu, because you and I are on the same page on this. So I do confess that I walked into a room of meningitis B uh, families, and I've never been the same since because the the, uh, Patricia talked about what it can do and people missing fingers, hands feet. Uh, one day they're healthy. They go uh, They go to sleep that night, Tell their call their parents from college. I got a headache. I don't feel good. Their parents say, you know, go to sleep or go to the school nurse. And the next thing you know, they're in the intensive care unit and they're lucky to, to live through through the outbreak. It's a small number. Can you talk about, uh, you know, just the, the idea that we want to save lives and we want to vaccinate even though the, the risk the risk is small? You know, it's a hard sell because it's an economic decision, and these vaccines are not free. 
They are not. Um, but if it's my kid, I'm hoping that the CDC will help me save my children's life. The Washington Post did a story about all these parents who had lost kids. And they were like, my doctor didn't tell me about the Men B vaccine. Why not? And their, ki- their kids are no longer alive. And to Patricia's point, um, in terms of education, there have been surveys of college students, and they don't think about vaccinations. They don't know which ones they are due and overdue for. Um, and so, and they don't know the schedule. And um, that's part of the transition of responsibility when kids go off to college. I think parents need to give them some limited autonomy and to involve them in decision-making process, especially for their own health, so that they can take the reins. And, you know, in a few years, they're the parents. And so that's part of the responsibility um, that we need to teach is uh, parents to do for their children. For vaccine information, including the vaccination schedule, which changes from time to time, the best resource is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, so cdc.gov. Um, if you want more information about um, vaccine side effects um, and um, who they're indicated for, immunize. Dot .org is another great website um, that can provide more information. The CDC, I also wanted to mention, has an app which can remind you when vaccines are due. So there's a lot of good resources out there. The last place that I would recommend is the American Academy of Pediatrics at aap.org for more information about vaccines as well. Right. I, I uh, remember sending off my kids to college and um, having them uh, snap a shot of their immunization Mm, record, right? So it's on their phone all the time. That's great. Yeah, Yeah, that's something that I recommend too. Um, And these vaccines are, uh, how much do they cost the system? Do we have any idea of like like the Men B or the HPV? And they're covered by insurance, are they not? They are covered by insurance. um, And with the Affordable Care Act currently, you know, vaccinations are um, required to be covered. The issue, um, I think, for adolescents who are in college is that um, they may be someplace where um, they're not at a not able to access a provider who's in network. And so that's why it's important to sort of figure these things out before kids go to college, because then, um, you know, the cost is is very high. But they, vaccines are covered by insurance uh, plans. Yeah. And when you think about the cost, um, I was looking at the statistics of how much it costs New York City, right, to um, contain that measles break. Uh, $6 million. They had to deploy 500 individuals into those four boroughs in Brooklyn. Uh, just to contain that outbreak. So the cost is high, not only in human lives and uh, illness, but uh, in trying to contain outbreaks if we're not doing our part in protecting protecting everyone with a vaccine. Compared to um, our other public health initiatives, they're extremely cost effective. Um, And that's something that, you know, maybe we don't talk about enough, but it definitely, in terms of Human productivity and and worker productivity as well are extremely cost effective as well. But that's not to say they're not also protective in terms of human lives. 322 million cases of vaccine preventable diseases have been prevented 
since the first immunizations were approved, and that's also 700,000 deaths in children alone that have been prevented from vaccines. I do want to ask you, how many adverse effects from vaccines have you seen in your pediatric practice? So in my own practice over the last maybe 20 years, and including those colleagues who I practice with, and I practice in a large practice with about 50 other providers in our health centers, I have not seen any cases of a vaccine-preventable disease. And that is talking maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of patients over the years. And no adverse effects? No adverse effects. That's and neither have my colleagues. <laughs> Dr. Fu, thank you so much for what you do. I know you work in uh, an urban part of Washington, D.C., and deal with an underserved population, and you're doing a real public service. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this podcast with us and for what you do every day for your patients. So thank you for your leadership and for being a, a friend of those of us who believe very strongly in the efficacy and safety of vaccines. Thanks. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback, so give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page or on Twitter. Still can't get enough? Visit nclnet.org. That's nclnet.org to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights, our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this.